those of us who have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ should be bold to say to Bo this morning when you see him, God saved you for a purpose. A purpose that we probably don't fully understand, but God has a purpose. And every single person who is baptized this morning, God has redeemed them for a purpose. If he hadn't, he would have taken us home by now. But he has a purpose for us, so that's why he has us here. We started this study called The Portrait several weeks ago, actually nine weeks ago. And in the beginning, I told you the premise for this study was this. What you believe about God determines what you do next. Your view of God determines your actions in life. You're going to see that carried out this morning. Specifically in this encounter that Jesus has with this lawyer. What you believe about God, what your view is of God, will determine what you do next. If you're new to New Hope, when you received a bulletin this morning when you came in, you might have found a a white piece of paper in there as an insert with a bunch of blank spaces. That first blank that you see, number one, is the words, do next. How you view God determines what you will do next. John understood that. And so in this gospel of John that we're studying, this, this portrait we see in John 1.18, he said, No man has seen the Father. No one has gone to heaven and seen God. But Jesus has explained him. So Jesus is painting this portrait for us of what God looks like. And the eyewitness account that he gives us is so detailed. Ah, you can smell the breeze on the Sea of Galilee. You can hear the crackle on the fire. You can taste the salt on your lips. It is so detailed and so specific because he was an eyewitness. He was right there to see Jesus. So in his 90s, as a man who's lived his entire life, he sits down to write the Gospel of John, things that he saw when he was in his 20s, giving you detailed information about what it was like to walk alongside Jesus. So this morning, I'm going to challenge you to get your amens on, okay? You're going to be using them this morning, so let's practice. On the count of three, I want you to say amen really loud with me. One, two, three. Amen. You're going to see why in just a minute, because Jesus speaks specifically in a very familiar passage of Scripture to an individual who does not get it. He cannot put the pieces together. Can't make this understanding work. So let's jump in here. You're going to see it up on the screen, John chapter 3 and verse 1. If you're new here this morning, you'll find Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. You can follow along there, but also up on the screen. And those Bibles are there for your benefit. If you don't happen to own one, we'd like you to take it with you today when you leave. It's our gift to you. We really want you to have a copy of God's Word in your hands. So John chapter 3 and verse 1 starts out this way. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So what's the setting? A picture of Nicodemus coming to this house wherever Jesus is at, knocking on the door. Hello, is Jesus in there? He wants to have this discussion. Whether they went up on the rooftop to catch the cool evening breeze or whether they went out and sat underneath a fig tree, and which we found out a few weeks ago was kind of common for men when they discuss theological issues. They go to a shaded tree area. We don't know the setting specifically, but we find that 
this Nicodemus, this Pharisee, comes to Jesus by night. Now, who is he? Well, first of all, we're told he's a Pharisee. We're also told he's a ruler of the Jews, which means he's part of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the Supreme Court. So this is not just an attorney. This is an attorney who's ascended to the level of the Supreme Court in the land. The Supreme Court was made up of 70 judges on the Sanhedrin Council, and they decided everything to do with the nation of Israel legally, politically, and religiously. So they had broad sweeping powers. So we see this man who's not just a Pharisee, which means that he lived by a very strict religious code. He's also an accomplished attorney who's elevated himself to the level of the Supreme Court. And we see in verse 10, he's the teacher of Israel, meaning he's a rabbi. He's an instructor. So he's got a dual role. He's both an attorney and he's an instructor. So we would say to equate it to today, he's a very successful businessman. He's a self-driven individual. He's scholarly, not just an attorney, but he's ascended to the high court. And so he's achieved a lot. We might even say he's research-oriented. This is a person who likes to dig into detail. So this research-oriented individual comes to Jesus, knowing that he's a member of the Sanhedrin. And I have to ask myself, I wonder if he knew the Apostle Paul. Because there was a time when Paul was not a follower of Christ, and he was a Pharisee. Paul wrote a description of what a Pharisee was like. Let me show you up on the screen. Philippians 3, 4. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. So you can see someone that's a Pharisee who belongs to that court is really a driven individual. And Paul described himself that way. So I'm wondering, I wonder if Paul actually knew Nicodemus. We understand that he's at least in his 30s, probably older than that, an elder. Older than Jesus, obviously, because Jesus is only 30 here. So we've got an older man coming to a younger man. And the Pharisees, we understand, represented the middle class, the working people. They're very popular among the working people. And he came to Jesus by night, according to this text. Now, I assume that he did not want the people on the Supreme Court, the other members of the Sanhedrin, to see him coming because he might incur some disfavor with them. But also, there was probably a pretty good chance that he didn't want to imply that the Sanhedrin was blessing the actions of Jesus. So he came as an individual asking his own questions. The important point here, though, is not how he came or when he came, but that he came, that he came to Jesus. So we see him use this term, rabbi, meaning this guy who's got titles, He's scholarly, he's ascended to a level himself, and he uses the title that is used for himself on Jesus. He calls Jesus a rabbi. He's calling him an equal. So he sees eye to eye with Jesus. He's certainly aware of what John the Baptist has been saying about Jesus, that there's been a witness that Jesus has arrived. And so he appears to be, according to this text, attracted because of the miracles He said, we've seen these signs that you do. So I'm going to say that Nicodemus is an individual who's deeply sincere in his faith, and he's on a truth quest. He's trying to find out what's going on. Now, can you imagine if you're the teacher of Israel, you're one who's made it to the Supreme Court, and yet when you hear Jesus teach to the crowds, he knows that he's never held the attention of the crowd the way that Jesus holds the attention of the crowd. 
He knows he's never performed a miracle. He's mesmerized when he's heard answers to questions that have plagued him his entire life. And so he finds this time as a man of high moral character and super achiever and deeply religious, driven to come and find Jesus at night. So he says, Rabbi, we know that you are from God. We know that you are a great man from God is what he says because these signs, these miracles that you're doing, no one can do these unless God is with him. Now, sometime you ought to take on this exercise I'm about to describe to you, and that would be to go back through chapter 2 that we looked at last week where we left off and just let it blend right into chapter 3. If you could remove the chapter breaks and remove the verse breaks, that's the way John actually wrote it. The numbers, the verses, and the chapters were put in later. They actually flowed together. So if you see chapter, tw- uh, chapter 2, verse 23, and verse 24, and verse 25, when it says that Jesus knew the heart of man, That was a setup to the visit of Nicodemus. God can look and see what's going on in man's heart. That's what it says at the end of chapter 2, and it blends right over into this passage because Jesus can see that this guy's attracted to him because of miracles, but not because of true faith in who Jesus is. So Jesus doesn't take his statement of faith at face value. Just because he says, you're a great man of God, Jesus redirects him and begins to talk to him about what life transformation looks like. True saving faith. This is a point for us to remember. When you're in the midst of conversation with individuals who don't necessarily believe in Jesus or believe in the way that you believe, you might want to stop and just put the brakes on and push back a little bit to make sure that the conversation you're having with someone, that you're speaking the same language. Because this individual comes in as a religious learned man who says, you are a great man from God. But Jesus says, whoa, wait, stop. Step back a little bit. Let's make sure we're speaking the same language. Look what Jesus does in verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Where'd that come from? Jesus is answering a question Nicodemus never asked. He came in and made an open-ended statement about these miracles. And Jesus is saying, you've got to be born again. You've got to get your act together. Now, apparently, Nicodemus has got a fascination with the superhuman or the supernatural. That's why he's there and he's asking. But Jesus went right straight to the real issue. He's talking about transformation by new birth. So if you've grown up in church, you've seen this phrase repeated throughout the Bible when Jesus speaks. He says, truly, truly. You see that up on the screen very closely after Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly? That's the word amen, amen in Greek. We use it today as the word amen, amen. So when we say it, and especially if we say it in church, we're responding to something that we agree with. So when Jesus is saying, truly, truly, or amen, amen, it means what is about to follow is authentic and genuine and so sincere that what is about to follow is incredibly significant. So Jesus sets him up by saying, Amen, Amen. There's authenticity about what I'm about to say. And in this instance, what he's about to say, no one gets into the kingdom of God unless they're born again. That's the one condition. Now, Nicodemus has come with his preset understanding of what it means to get into the kingdom of God because he's very religious. So this is the phrase Jesus actually uses. You'll see it on the screen, ganao anothen. It's Greek, and it means born again. Ganao, figuratively, to regenerate or procreate. 
and anathen from the first. By implication, it means to be completely new, a brand new beginning. So how many of you had Etch-a-Sketches when you were kids growing up or you bought them for your kids? You know what those are, okay. So you get the Etch-a-Sketch, you do your little doodling on it and you take it and you get bored with it and you flip it upside down and you shake it to start all over again. Okay, that's not what this is talking about. It would be more like somebody giving you a brand new Etch-a-Sketch every time you wanted to start a new drawing. A brand new beginning. It's not taking something old and recycling it. This is a brand new birth. Born again means something that comes from above. So this action of God by which he imparts eternal life is something that man can't do. A brand new beginning. And Nicodemus is trying to sort this out. How, how do I get this new beginning? What does this look like? Peter wrote about this, 1 Peter 1.3. gave us an understanding. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. Ganao anothen. That's the same words. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So this theme of being born again, a brand new beginning, is consistent throughout Scripture, starting all over. But Jesus says you can't get into the kingdom of God unless you're born again. So try and think like a first century Pharisee. He believes that he gets into the kingdom of God because he was born as a descendant of Abraham. He's a Jew. He's not just a Jew. He's a Pharisee. He's not just a Pharisee. He is a member of the Sanhedrin. He's not just a member of the Sanhedrin. He's the teacher of Israel. So there's no one more religious, more perceived to be righteous than this guy. But no matter how religious someone is, no one gets into the kingdom without experiencing personal regeneration, a brand new beginning. The implications for this are staggering. And it sets Nicodemus back on his heels because all his life, He's been taught to observe the law, the rituals, to perform all these functions. That's why he became a Pharisee, in order to earn God's favor. He even made it to the Supreme Court. But Jesus is now calling him to abandon all of that and start all over again to get this brand new beginning, to abandon all of his preconceived ideas and start by saying, I need something that I can't get on my own. Ultimately, what Jesus is saying to all of us is that our human effort is powerless to save us. You can't be good enough to get into the kingdom. You have to have the work of Jesus. This is the way it's summed up by a theologian. He's dead now, but Dr. Lenski captured this really well. I want you to see the quote on the screen. Jesus' words regarding the new birth shatters once for all every supposed excellence of man's attainment. All merit of human deeds, all prerogatives of natural birth or station. Spiritual birth is something one undergoes, not something he produces. What a blow. He's a Jew who can't get into the kingdom. There's no advantage. He's a Pharisee, and he can't win anything as a result of being a Pharisee. A member of the intellectual court of the Sanhedrin, and it amounts to nothing. Everything he'd worked for is a pile of ashes. God says that he'll refine us through fire. This is a refining taking place because this guy's looking at this and saying, I can't put these pieces together. Jesus tells the most religious man in all of Israel, you're not in the kingdom. You're not there yet. 
You have to be born again. So all the alarms are going off now. Nicodemus' intellectual thinking, his religious training, is taking him to the point where he's just frustrated. So look at his question. Verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Remember the shock now? He came looking for explanation of miracles. He wanted to know more about the signs. And Jesus isn't answering any of those questions. This is like taking a first-year biology student and setting him down with Albert Einstein to discuss the theory of relativity. He's trying to put these pieces together that are way over his head. How can a man be born when he is old? Now, I understand that he's highly educated, so he's not misinterpreting Jesus. He understands Jesus' words, literally, but he's replying in the context, trying to say, how can I start all over again? How, how can I grasp this? So like many that you might know who marvel at this explanation that Jesus can give you a brand new beginning, that's what you see Nicodemus doing. He's marveling at this. And this is his words. If I'm going to put it in my context. Jesus, you're asking me to do something that is humanly impossible. Exactly. It is humanly impossible. That'd be a great point for an amen. Because you, can, <laughs> you cannot do it. You see what's going on here? Jesus is not minimizing. He's not minimizing the steps to get into the kingdom in order to win Nicodemus. If anything, he's raising the bar. Saying, this is what it takes, Nicodemus. It's not so easy like you're trying to perceive that it is. So he's not minimizing at all. You need the palingenesia. That's a word that you might be familiar with that we talked about a few months ago. It means new birth from above. Look at the definition on the screen. Palingenesia, and it's a compound word in the Greek language. So palin or palin means from above, and genesia or genesis means a new beginning. So when you put the two together, it's spiritual renovation. It's rebirth, a brand new beginning. So Jesus is challenging us to abandon everything we've ever trusted in. Anything that we thought we could accomplish on our works outside of regeneration and leave those things behind and embrace the regeneration. So this is not the old nature altered like the Etch-A-Sketch. This is a completely new beginning. So verse 5, Jesus gets into a conversation with him now. Jesus answered, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So Jesus is elaborating for him. He's helping him to understand this. Unless you're born of the water and the Spirit, you can't get in, Nicodemus. So this born of water concept parallels the phrase born again. The, the two go together. Now we know that Jesus is not talking about baptism. He's not talking about what just happened here. When he says you have to be born of the water, that's not what's going on. If that's what was going on, you'd have to say that all of the Old Testament believers, they're not in the kingdom because they didn't get baptized. They never got the chance to experience the new baptism. Or the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross next to Jesus. Jesus has crucified two guys on either side of him. One of them, very near the end of his life, turns to Jesus, arms are spread wide open, and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, truly this day I tell you, you will be with me in paradise. It doesn't say the next thing he did was take him off the cross, baptize him, and put him back on the cross, does it? 
No, baptism doesn't save you. It's an act of obedience. So Jesus isn't talking about baptism as an act of salvation. It's, a, it's an act of, of, of obedience to Christ. So what's he talking about here? Because obviously he expected Nicodemus to get this. He wouldn't use that phrase if he didn't want Nicodemus to understand it. So let's explore it a little bit. In the Old Testament, the water and spirit, when they're used together, when they're put in context that way, is always talking about the regeneration, the new beginning. I'll give you an example of it up on the screen. It comes from Ezekiel 36, 24, and this is describing God's restoration of Israel when they had wandered away from him. Look with me on the screen. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols now God's not talking about a rainstorm there's not a thunderstorm there he's talking about the spiritual regeneration the washing of the soul so this is very familiar to Nicodemus when God when Jesus uses these words because he set it against the backdrop of the Old Testament Nicodemus knew the Old Testament So Jesus is using something very familiar to him, saying, you need the spiritual washing of your soul, the regeneration. So look with me at verse 7. Jesus understands that he's having a hard time getting through to this guy. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. But, you do, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So what's Jesus telling him to do? Contrary to everything he'd ever been taught, everything set it all aside, his entire life he believed he could obtain salvation through his good works to be good enough. And Jesus is saying you can't have that. So he uses this, um, this word here, don't be astonished, thumazo is the word. Don't be shocked, Nicodemus. I'm telling you, you must be born again. And he uses a really strong term here. The, the word for must is the word D in, in the Greek, a D-E-I, or it could be pronounced die, and it, it's necessary. When's the last time someone ever used the word behooved on you? That's what you see in the definition. If a police officer pulled you over and wrote you a ticket for speeding, you would be behooved to go to the court and pay your ticket. It's, it's a pressing need. So Jesus is saying, you are behooved to be born again. You have to be. So he illustrates his point by using the wind. The wind blows where it wishes. You can't understand it. You can't explain it. But you can see the effects of it. And so when the wind moves, you understand that it's like the Holy Spirit. You can't understand it. It's regeneration. is a mystery. But you can see the effects of it in the lives of people like Bo. You understand there's a regeneration that's taken place. So Nicodemus' response, he's still mystified by this. Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? See, he still can't accept what he's hearing. So he's on a quest to understand, but he's made really, really very little progress. This is why. He's hanging on to his preconceived ideas of who God is. What you believe about God determines what you do next. And he's believing something about God that doesn't match He believes he can work his way in. He doesn't understand that salvation comes through grace and mercy. Amen. Amen. Yeah. (laughs) I I shouldn't have to cue you guys. Okay, verse 10. (laughs) That I'm moving on? (laughs) Yeah. Okay, verse 10. Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel? 
and do not understand these things, you need to really let that settle in because that can be us. Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? He could say that to anybody in America today. Are you attending church at New Hope and you don't understand this? Here's why. This teacher of Israel, Jesus expected him to understand. He expected that he would take the knowledge that he had from the Old Testament, the knowledge that he had that he taught all of Israel with, that he sat on the Supreme Court with and be able to put the pieces together, to be able to understand. His exposure to the Old Testament should have been enough. Jesus thought it was enough information. Let me show you up on the screen, 2 Timothy 3.14. This is evidence of that. It comes from Paul writing to Timothy. Continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings. What are the sacred writings? The Old Testament, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So if Paul's telling Timothy, you got the Old Testament, you understand it, you can put the pieces together, Jesus understands this guy's got enough information. He should have been able to put the pieces together. It is so sad when someone's preconceived ideas about who God is clouds their ability to understand salvation through grace and mercy and faith. Because here's the truth. He desires to transform Nicodemus just like he desires to transform you. He desires to transform us into a broader understanding of what God is like. And Nicodemus is so blinded he can't see it. He believes he can be good enough. And you can't be good enough. So verse 11, this is where we're going to end it today. Truly, truly, amen, amen, there it is again. I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? From this point forward, it's all Jesus. When we get back into the passage next time, Pharisees all done talking. He just listens to the Son of God begin to explain. So Jesus says, we speak of what we know. Here's the problem, the real problem for Nicodemus. It's not a lack of revelation. It's not a lack of information. He's got all the information. And now he's heard from God directly. He's heard things that Noah never heard, that Moses never heard, that Daniel never heard. And Jesus expects him to get it. And yet he says to him, you don't accept it. You don't accept our testimony. He's heard the most beautiful description ever of the palingenesia, the new birth from above, what it means to be born again, right from the mouth of God. Yet he's struggling to set aside his preconceived ideas. However, and this is an important however, he is responsible to do something with this information. Just because he has it isn't enough to leave it there. Romans 1.18, I want you to write that down and read it later today yourself if you've never read it. Romans 1.18 through 21 says this. Every single person who has ever lived on planet Earth is responsible to God for the knowledge that they have within them. Nature speaks to it. What God has planted in our heart speaks to it. And Romans 1.18 through 21 basically sums it up this way, saying... 
You're without excuse. There is no one that has an excuse that can stand before God and says, I didn't know. So in this case, Nicodemus has to stand before Christ and say, I can't make this work. I don't understand it. So Jesus has a rebuke for him. This is where it ends. Before he lets him go, he's going to clarify God's nature and help him to understand. Now remember, he came asking about miracles, right? He came wanting to know more about signs. Jesus said to him, I've told you things pertaining to earth, the basics, and you don't get it. I'm not going to tell you about heavenly things. I'm not going to reveal that information to you because you can't even get the basics. So Jesus is telling him he's not going to fill him in on heavenly things until he really gets it, until he puts the pieces together of the basics. So do you see why I said in the very beginning he's got this shallow profession? He comes to Jesus, knock, knock, knock on the door. Hey, is Jesus there? Jesus comes to the door. You're a great man from God. We know that no one could do these signs that you do unless God was with him. Well, that's a very shallow profession that Jesus sees. Why? It's meaningless because of the premise through which he sees God. His lens is, I can work my way to God. And Jesus went right back to him and said, no, you need transformation. You need to recognize that you're a sinner, one who needs to be saved by grace. So the implications of this are pretty profound. You'll see it in your notes today, later when you read it. But here's the implications of this. A refusal to believe the basics that Jesus is the Savior who brings the new birth, it results in an inability to fathom the most basic things of the faith, the earthly truth of the new birth. Someone who's just rejecting it flat out. So you, as a church, should not be surprised when you're having conversations with friends or family members who can't put the pieces together. They're like Nicodemus. They haven't made that first step yet. He can't put the pieces together. So I see two sides to Nicodemus. I see the intellectual side, the one who's achieved all the titles. I'm not only a Pharisee, I'm a member of the Supreme Court. I'm the teacher of Israel. Yet, his intellect is set aside when his presence of self-sufficiency kicks in. His self-sufficient nature that says, I can achieve my way to heaven. So he has to set aside this intellectual side to be able to say, I don't get it. I can't put these pieces together. So you've got this balance between the intellectual and the self-sufficient nature who wants to rationalize through all this. Here's what it comes down to. He does not want to admit he's a helpless sinner. The Pharisees especially believed how righteous they were, how they carried out all the acts of offering at the altar. They lived religiously every day. And Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter. It doesn't even measure up unless you've been born again. So for us, we can't become so self-absorbed in our conviction that you can do enough of the right things. How many good things do you need to do to stand before a holy and just God and say, hey, I earned my way in? You can't do enough. A holy and just God doesn't allow that. You have to be covered in the blood of Jesus. So how you view God really does determine what you do next. So his lens through which he saw God told him that he could achieve his way. And Jesus is saying, it doesn't work that way.
your lens is incorrect. So this morning, if we were going to take a brush stroke and put a big one on the canvas of Jesus explaining God, I'd say we're seeing the God who is willing to confront and speak right to our heart and say, you can't get into the kingdom without my son paying the price for your sins. That's what he gave us. So I'm going to pray for you that God will really seal these truths in our heart. Would you do that with me? Let's pray. Father, I'm sure that in an auditorium of this size with this many people here, that there's some who are questioning whether or not they really understand this. And I ask, first of all, that your spirit would be at work, not only to bring understanding, but to bring conviction of the need to have a walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, to really comprehend and understand that in such a way that our total dependence is on you and not on what we can achieve. But Father, for those who follow and believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I ask God that you would take this and seal it deeply in our heart. Make us bold to speak about this truth. I look forward to the next time we get together again and be able to talk about these things, but between now and then, Father, seal these things in our heart. I ask this in the name of Jesus, our soon-coming King. Amen. Amen. Have a great week.